in the first 10 years of cloud computing, a set of technologies emerged that every software enterprise needs. Continuous delivery, version control, logging, monitoring, routing, data warehousing. These tools were built into the Cloud Foundry project, a platform for application deployment and management. As we enter the second decade of cloud computing, another new set of technologies are emerging as useful tools. Serverless functions allow for rapid scalability at a low cost. Kubernetes offers a control plane for containerized infrastructure. Reactive programming models and event sourcing make an application more responsive and simplify the interactions between teams who are sharing data sources. The job of a cloud provider is to see new patterns in software development and offer tools to developers to help them implement those new patterns. Of course, building these tools is a huge investment. If you're a cloud provider, your customers are trusting you with the health of their application. The tool that you build has to work properly, and you have to help the customers figure out how to leverage the tool and resolve any breakages. Onsi Fakuri is the Senior VP of R&D for Cloud at Pivotal, a company that provides software and support for Spring, Cloud Foundry, and several other tools. I sat down with Onsi to discuss his strategy for determining which products Pivotal chooses to build. There are a multitude of engineering and business elements that Onsi has to consider when allocating resources to a project. Cloud Foundry is used by giant corporations like banks, telcos, and automotive manufacturers. Spring is used by most enterprises that run Java, including most of the startups that I have worked at in the past. Cloud Foundry has to be able to run on-premise, and in the cloud providers like AWS, Google, and Microsoft. Pivotal also has its own cloud, Pivotal Web Services. And all of these stakeholders have different technologies that they would like to see built. Onsi's job is to determine which ones have the highest net impact and make a decision on those and allocate resources towards them. I interviewed Onsi at Spring One Platform, which is a conference that is organized by Pivotal, who, full disclosure, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. This week's episodes are all conversations from that conference, and if there's a conference that you think I should attend and do coverage at, let me know. Whether you like this format or not, I would love to get your feedback. We have some big developments coming for Software Engineering Daily in 2018, and we want to have a closer dialogue with the listeners. Please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or join our Slack channel. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Onsi Fakhori is the Senior VP of R&D for Cloud at Pivotal. Onsi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Good to be here. You manage R&D at Pivotal, and Pivotal has a lot of products. How do you decide which products to direct resources towards? That's a really, really good question. And it's one that we've been working to improve on as we've scaled. So we've been on this rocket ship journey, going from just a handful of small teams to now over like 260 people. And I'm going to focus on talking about Cloud Foundry here specifically. And so, you know, how do you scale an agile organization? How do you how do you scale product for an agile organization? How do you do it when you're running across multiple offices? How do you do that? How do you do that well? And how do you, you know, sort of in my position in leadership, like how do you do that without overly centralizing control, but actually decentralizing authority and decision-making. And so what we really, really want to do is empower and enable our product managers who are running our various components to our various component teams to, to really feel empowered to make the right decisions around what to prioritize and, and when and how to, to move the product forward. And I think we've had a lot of success there. And it, it's so interesting that you have to really organize your teams in a way that promotes success. And so, you know, we have some teams that just totally own a piece of the product and they can move quickly and they can make their own prioritization decisions. And then the way that staffing works is they will bubble up, hey, you know, here's the, here's the business case for why we need more. Or, you know, the team's health demands that we have another pair or another two pairs. And then that feeds into sort of the allocation system where we're just 
trying to embrace like this marketplace mentality of flowing resources to where the impact can be highest, right? But what's been really an interesting and fun challenge is how do you take teams that are organized around components because they sort of have to be because each of our pieces of Cloud Foundry is so complex that you need engineers that have a depth of experience who stick with it, who go really deep. I mean, we do everything from containerization where we find ourselves debugging the kernel because of like a production issue, right? You know, all the way to like streaming logs through the system to handling routing of traffic through the system to the fun distributed complex systems problems around managing containers at scales of like 250,000 containers, right? To like front end APIs, to UIs, to concourse and its automated. Like this is just incredible. I like to think of like, how many startups are we at right now? <laughs> this is the scope of what we're doing. Yeah. And so you have to do, you, you, you end up finding you have to organize around components and domains so that folks can code deep, right? It's very hard to be a really, really strong UI developer who's able to pull something like PCF metrics off where you have just these, you know, beautiful visualizations of custom metrics and alerting that customers can use. And also be like a kernel hacker, right? Like these these things are just very different. And so you need to have these vertical slices. But then to deliver value to the platform, to deliver an end-to-end feature, that's actually a horizontal slice that can cut across a lot of these components. And that's been this really fun challenge of how do we fund and ensure that initiatives that are cross-cutting actually actually land well and solve the problems that they're intended to solve. I imagine landing those well can be difficult because you're trying to integrate i mean the thing about cloud foundry and spring is the experience is often this highly integrated experience but from a management point of view if you want to orchestrate teams to work on a feature together and these teams are normally going to be operating in disparate disjoint sets with their own sets of priorities right with their own little mini visions for their neck of the woods how do you drive that broader cross-cutting persona-based vision or theme or initiative-based vision right and that's that's just the a, a constant thing that we're exploring and experimenting with right and it's mm-hmm. I, we, we think it's actually really important because you know there's sort of this meta thing where it's easy to see pivotal as like this creator of software or the software vendor that's delivering software that's trying to help our customers operate in a different model. But it's more than that. Like our, our heritage, our DNA comes from the Pivotal Labs consulting practice. Right? So I started in 2010 as a labs consultant and then made my way into this position over the years. But learned a lot about what it means to do to write code in a healthy and sustainable way, what it means to focus a backlog or a, or a team on on a product and on a set of problems that deliver value. And so what you know what we promise our customers is hey, if you adopt that process, if you adopt that focus on chasing value and you use this technology stack, it will enable you to move very quickly. And that's true. But the challenge is doing that at scale. Doing that at scale in a way where you can have independent teams that are empowered to make their impact, building their own, call it microservices or pieces of the pie, whatever you want to call it, right? But then how do you help organize those teams into unified, coherent visions, right? How do you execute something that touches across multiple teams? And so as we're figuring that out, I mean, I'm in conversations with customers all the time where they ask, how are you scaling this? And, and the honest answer is, you know, we're all on this journey together. And so we have, it's often like we have these really good back and forths and I share things that we're doing that are working, areas where we're struggling and, and sort of the philosophy of how do you empower independent teams to move quickly, but then also empower folks who want to own that cross-cutting thing to really have both the authority and the autonomy to be able to move and deliver value. So a lot of the people that listen to this show listen because they want to understand how these large and productive software organizations that they see, how the business actually works. So we like to mix in the notions of business along with the notions of engineering. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the the pivotal business, and then we can talk about how that business informs some technical decisions. I think people are familiar with Pivotal as a company that develops Spring and Cloud Foundry and offers some services, some consulting around that, can you like kind of break down what are the the biggest revenue drivers or how does the business work and how does that guide decisions that you make? Sure. From a from a revenue driver's perspective, it's primarily around 
helping our customers bring their workloads to Cloud Foundry. But it's not just about getting those workloads onto Cloud Foundry. It's really about, I think the way Rob puts it is, we could give them a, a, a fish. So Rob, the CEO, right? We could, you know, give them a bunch of fish and they can, you know, they can enjoy their fish. They can run some of their workloads on Cloud Foundry. But what we really want to do is, is give them fishing poles. And more to the point, we want to make them people who can create their own fishing poles. We want our customers to really embrace a different way of building software that enables them to bring not just more of their workloads, but but new new problems, to be able to solve new problems using a method that allows them to focus on delivering customer value that leverages the technology stack that we provide to allow them to move very quickly and to explore that space very efficiently. Now, that drives the business in the sense that it drives consumption for Cloud Foundry, and that's important. But the real deep effect that it has is it helps all these customers have these aha moments where they realize that, wow, there's a new way to work here. There's a new way to build software that's much less risky because you have these feedback loops that allow you to course correct as you go. And it's just different. And a lot of the times you'll hear things like developers say, oh, don't take Cloud Foundry away from me because it's enabling me to be just so empowered that I can just solve a problem and not worry about all of the stuff that's below the value that I want to deliver in my code. And then I can learn and turn around and adjust and push my code again. And so that, that vision of being able to, to, to develop iteratively based on reality and data is really powerful. And I think that the talking about the business value is just driving consumption of the platform doesn't do that piece justice. We don't want to just have usage. We want to have usage that's really empowering our customers to, to just approach this whole space very differently. Yeah and move more quickly because that's what's going to let them succeed in the long run, right? We want to help them be very competitive in whatever domain that they're in. And again, fundamentally, the way to be competitive is to be able to shift direction quickly in response to the changing context around us, right? Everything's changing faster and faster and faster. And so the only way to keep up is to be able to change along with it at pace. Yeah. So what about the notion of being a cloud provider while also so you know preparing for these shows like uh i i kind of dove into how bosch works and bosch is the layer of infrastructure management that sits between cloud foundry and a cloud provider so if i'm microsoft azure or google cloud i write ways to hook into bosch to provide my infrastructure to Cloud Foundry, so it's so it's this common CLI that I can use to interact with with Cloud Foundry if I'm a cloud provider, and I'm just interested in like sort of the the business dynamics between Pivotal because Pivotal has I think your own hosted Cloud Foundry offering, and then there are other you you provide ways in Cloud Foundry for other cloud providers to offer. Cloud Foundry as a service. So I'm just interested in like the business dynamics of how that works and can you is it is it situated in a way where Pivotal can end up making money off of Cloud Foundry even when a Cloud Foundry instance is hosted on Azure? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot there to unpack. Bosch provides an abstraction that allows Cloud Foundry to run on top of basically any infrastructure as a service that can satisfy that abstraction. And it's not a very complicated API. There's just a bunch of endpoints. And yeah. if you satisfy them, we will be able to drive your automation to deliver whatever it is that we've packaged on top of Bosch. Bosch is very generic. It doesn't just deploy Cloud Foundry. It deploys whatever you write to deploy on top of it. And we even have customers who've started to use Bosch to deploy their own workloads in that way. But that's a side story. So why do we do this? I think one of the main reasons is because as you see this great and exciting competitive landscape emerging of these different cloud providers. And as you see companies grappling with like on-premise versus cloud and, and just this, this sense of, gosh, it's hard to choose and it's hard to make a big bet and it's hard to know where we're going to end up in years from now. What Cloud Foundry brings to the table is that portability and that optionality. So, if you write your applications to run on top of Cloud Foundry using Cloud Foundry services and application runtime, like you can then take what you've deployed and run it on top of any other cloud provider or run it on-premise. And it basically just transfers over. 
you don't have that sense of flocken and you can start to try and explore these different things or even better you can have a shared interface for how you run your applications and then pick different providers based on sort of the services that they offer. So maybe you'd pick GCP because of the great machine learning stuff that they've got, right? But but you might pick Azure because of, you know, whatever other reason. And so you have that optionality and you don't have to feel like locked in and like you have to do all of your tooling around solving for one cloud or the other that by building on top of Cloud Foundry, which builds on top of Bosch, you have that option. And now for us, again, from the business perspective, we're not charging you for the VMs or the IaaS. We're, we're you know, it's it's all about consumption of containers. And so regardless of where you're running, that sort of makes sense for us. And it also makes sense for our partners, Azure, Microsoft, Google, GCP, like because they're going to be getting revenue because you're using their their virtualization, you're using their their hardware, right? And so it's it's this mutually beneficial thing for us and for for our partners. So, so Pivotal gets a cut even when Cloud Foundry is running on Google's infrastructure, for example. You pay for Yes, Cloud Foundry to manage your containers. We don't get a cut of like the IS spend that you oh, have, okay. just to be clear, right? Right. That's sort of, that's going... It's like a fixed subscription thing or... It's, uh, yeah, it's a subscription-based model. Okay, I see. So so if I, and by the way, I'm just, this no, it's is fine. not, it's not at all like a, like a, how do you do this? You know, what what do you, your machinations or something? I'm just, I'm very yeah, interested. just trying to understand how I, it works, yeah. Absolutely. So if... Somebody sets up Cloud Foundry on GCP. It's running on Google Cloud's infrastructure. Correct. And so it's running on Google Cloud's infrastructure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You basically just give us, you know, your your credentials to your Google Cloud project, and we take care completely of managing the infrastructure. So oh, we'll spin okay. up VMs on demand. Well, this is the. I mean, this is the real power of Bosch and Cloud Foundry, right? It's not only do you do you get a platform that will run your applications and take care of all of the like low value stuff that you really shouldn't be worried about? Yeah. You should just worry about your code. That's that's the promise we make to the developer. Now, here's my source code running on the cloud for me. I do not care how. Like we just make that happen. Yeah. We also make a promise to that sort of operator persona, like the 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 person at the enterprise that's responsible for providing this service to their developers, right? Like they have to run Cloud Foundry, right? They have to deploy it somehow. What Bosch does is it makes that really relatively easy. So we make it relatively easy to like get Cloud Foundry bootstrapped and up and running on something like GCP. That's the day one experience. Yeah. But the real value, the real power is the day two experience. So you just, when we ship and you release, if there's a high severity CVE, you know, we'll turn it around in like a couple of days and you'll get a new release. You can single click of a button, upgrade your cluster, and we'll roll through all of the VMs. You don't have to do any of it. We'll, you know, we'll provision new ones, shut down old ones, do it in such a way that everything remains up and highly available. And if you build your applications in this 12-factor format, 12-factor format, like your applications will stay up. You won't see any downtime. And we'll just manage the entire IaaS for you, whether it's Google or Azure or AWS or vSphere, and it all just, it all just works. And and that's remarkable. It's sort of like making the impossible possible. Like it's very hard for, you know, your typical enterprise customer to say with confidence, we've patched everything now. Yeah. But with us, you know, to patch your Cloud Foundry is literally download the latest tile, hit apply. Yeah. And everything gets patched. So if I'm Google, I why don't I look at that and say, well, I should, why don't, because the Cloud Foundry is open source. So why doesn't Google say, hey, we should get into the Pivotal or the Cloud Foundry support business. Why don't they do that? I think I think just we've been partnering and that's been going well, right? Like yeah, we're yeah. able to do that together. And so they and there's fo- a lot of they domain focus expertise. On, yeah, and they focus on building an amazing IaaS and we focus on building an amazing platform that runs on top of amazing IaaS, yes. right? So it's it's again it's mutually beneficial. Yes. Fascinating. Okay, cool. This that's really clarified things a lot for me. So when you're now that we have the business model in mind, the interface to provide at that Bosch layer to allow any cloud provider to plug into Cloud Foundry, you mentioned that you really want this Bosch layer to be a pretty narrow interface. Why is that? Why don't you want a more robust interface for cloud providers to really plug in, you know, in many different ways, their infrastructure into Cloud Foundry? I make maybe I make it sound super narrow. It's not super duper narrow. Oh, okay. it, it's it's as narrow as it needs to be to satisfy the workloads that we want to run. 
And as we've expanded the class of workloads, we've actually been adding to that API to make it more proficient and able to do more. This does have this interesting effect where we sort of take a lowest common denominator approach. So, you know, if something can run on Bosch, it can therefore run on every IaaS. And so it becomes a little bit harder, pardon me, to differentiate between the IaaSs. But with that said, there are ways to sort of pass you know, custom metadata down. This is getting detailed, but like there are ways. That's fine. We're, you know, there are a details w- podcast. Right, there, are, there are ways for folks to expose some particular configurability in their IS to some extent that allows them to differentiate relative to each other. You know, a good example is, you know, all these different ISs have different ways of doing that. I'm going to get this wrong. That sort of, you know, cheaper unit VM. Like you can you can opt into like more ephemeral VMs that cost you less per hour. You know, there's different there's different names for these for the different providers, and so you know we you can expose that sort of configuration through Bosch, and so you can start to to differentiate a little bit IaaS by IaaS, but the basic functionality needs to be the same because what we want to be able to do is make a promise around stability and upgrades, right? And so we need to keep the testing matrix, as it were, as narrow as we can. Yeah. Otherwise, we have this proliferation of like edges that you have to cover in testing. I mean, one of the most remarkable things that we do is. Just the degree of testing is amazing. Oh, man. We have this one team called the Master Pipeline Team. They're at the very end of the pipeline, and they will take every artifact that's coming out from all of our teams, combine them, and deploy them to the various environments, vSphere, AWS, GCP, and Azure. And they will do upgrade tests to make sure we can get from A to B. They will do fresh install tests to make sure that A works, to make sure that B works. And as they're doing them, it's like we're validating uptime throughout the test. We're validating yeah. that everything's green. I mean, these, these things are amazing yeah. and they're fully automated. And like the T, te- I mean, I, what I love about Pivotal is just our, we're all in on testing and automation and like we run towards the pain. If something's hard to automate, huh. like that's fun. <laughs> Let's go fix that. This is where Concourse was born, right? Like that it came out of the sense of, well, there's lots of tools out there that are really good and solid and, and, and great. Like, we were missing a tool that would allow us to really bring the level of automation we needed to to our pipelines. And so it's really a, a project that was born out of that need here at Pivotal. Mm. Yeah, yeah the, testing all testing Cloud Foundry on a bajillion different cloud providers, that sounds like the same problem of testing your mobile application on the right. 80 million Android right. flavors. Right. So you want to constrain yourself to something that's sane, right? Uh-huh. Otherwise, it, it's too much. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I I found about Spring as I was doing research for it, Spring Cloud, that I just didn't know because I haven't worked with it, is that Spring Cloud uses a bunch of components that were originally developed at Netflix, like these projects like Hystrix, for example. What's the relationship between Netflix and Pivotal? I think that's a that's a good question that like Ryan Morgan can dig into oh, a little okay. more deeply, just honestly. Um, but largely it's been this mutual embrace of open source. Yeah. And so they've totally embraced Spring and Spring Boot and we've we've been totally embracing the 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 sort of opinions and pieces of infrastructure that they've been coming out with around things like Spring Cloud. And so that's been an area of collaboration. That sounds pretty harmonious because Netflix is basically they know how to do things. They kind of see the future before it hap- like 5 or 10 years before it happens to the rest of the world. So they'd build these open source projects like Hystrix and then you can just dog food them basically right and what's great is they're sort of they make a lot of sense within the broader spring ecosystem and so there's a lot of consonants there right like it they, these things work well together and so we're able to bring the learnings that netflix has arrived at within their context which is just amazing right like the scale that they're running at and the way that they're engineering their their stuff we're able to take those ideas and then make them available to our customers yeah now netflix is kind of a polyglot stack like i've interviewed some people there who are working on node stuff plenty of people who are working on java stuff in a modern day organization like netflix do you know how they're picking between languages like no idea okay i don't have a lot of insight into that sorry okay no that's fair enough so one of the announcements that i found pretty interesting at the keynotes were here at uh, Spring One platform, obviously, was the functions as a service work. Basically, Pivotal has a new functions as a service platform. Can you explain what was the motivation for building that and who is it for? I, th- I think the main motivation is us really wanting to enter that space and learn and and learn with our customers to, to bring 
some of that functionality of what does it look like to have you know, small snippets of code that can be totally managed by a platform. There's a lot of excitement around the, the sort of burstiness of functions as a service, right? Like I can go all the way down to zero and then all the way back up to non-zero very quickly with low latency. And what sorts of cost savings does that give me? What sort of use cases and applications does that open up? And so we're super excited to, to really be, be able to introduce this because now it puts us in a position where we can start to have these conversations with our customers and be like, let's, let's explore what you would do with this. Let's explore how it can help. And let's make sure that we're both building the roadmap together so that when we do ship sort of a, a commercial offering built on top of Riff, which is the open source piece that we've been working on for not very long, like it's, 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 a, it's a relatively new project, yeah. that, that we deliver something that's just, again, uniquely valuable to our customers and what problems they they need to solve. So, so you built an open source way to do functions as a service, and you're working on productizing. You eventually that's right. That's right. Did you did you look at OpenWhisk when People, you? Yeah. The, so the team, the team, <laughs> and again, this is this is. I encourage you to talk with the team. They they can speak to this much yeah, better yeah, than sure. I can. But like, they did a lot of reflecting and thinking about what's out there, and yeah, you know that you can imagine. There's like this big collection of pros and cons. You know what's what's good about what's out there? What what do we see as lacking? Sure. And really framing the work that they're doing as like our opinion on what this looks like, what this looks like done well. And I think, you know, we'll see, we'll see what sort of adoption it has. We'll see how it resonates with this space, how it plays with or, or doesn't with these other, with yeah. these other competing things. Yeah. Well, it's blue ocean. And yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's exciting. Forward. It's it exciting. Is, yeah. Definitely. But yeah, I do look forward to talking to them, but I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but the big problem that, or one of the main unsolved problems that I've talked to people about in the functions of service space is the whole cold start thing. Yeah. Did did you look into that at all? Or? It's part of it's part of the mandate. It's like how are we going to approach that? What does that what does that look like for us? How are we going to do caching so that the cold start right. is as quick as possible? Yeah. I mean, we have we have people on the team who've done a lot of thinking around what's the quickest way to say say it's Java code. Like, what's the quickest way to start a JVM? Like, really? Like, if you strip it down to its bare essentials, like how quickly can you get it up and running? And so, that's been an area of research and trying to understand how do we take some of those learnings and like package them up transparently. So you're not worrying about that. You're just giving us a line of code and we're, we're managing all of that. Hmm. There are some other trends. I mean, serverless is the, the buzziest of the trends, but there's also obviously Kubernetes, which is gaining a ton of steam. And so when Kubernetes came out, what was your, initial reaction to it did like what were the different opportunities because this is obviously a useful building block how did you think about pivotal as a company where were the opportunities where you could leverage it sure kubernetes came out right as we were i mean we were on the cusp of shipping our own rewrite of our container orchestrator so cloud foundry is built on top of a container orchestrator called diego the name yes historical reasons right for the name and you know, even from early on, there were questions of like, is this a, is this an alternative? Is this something that we should look at mm. to sort of plug in underneath Cloud Foundry? But then quickly came to the realization that the value of Cloud Foundry is really around the abstractions that it provides our customers and the opinionated workflow that it has. And you know, while we while we we could do something like that, it it, it really doesn't add a lot of value there. And that what we've learned is to to really bring these things to production at scale. It's been incredibly valuable to own the whole stack. Um, all the way down, and to be able to adapt it and tailor it towards that use case so that you end up with what is a really seamless experience. And we've been able to continue to layer on functionality that that makes a lot of sense. As I shared in my keynote, because of the opinionation of the platform, it does allow developers to move very quickly, but it does limit sort of the, the different types of workloads that you can bring. And in particular, if you have something that has really complicated life cycle requirements or networking or persistence requirements, it's it's not always a good fit for Cloud Foundry. Yeah. I mean, we've actually found that a lot of these things, they actually do run and they run just fine. And so in those cases, we just bring them on. But there, there comes a point where there's so much complexity to run something, typically because it's it's sort of written for a different it's almost a worldview, right? It's it's not sort of written to be this cloud native thing that it needs more care and feeding. That something like Kubernetes provides you with sort of these lower level primitives to be able to manage something like that. 
And really for us, it became this, this very obvious, almost no brainer. It's like, hey, our customers want to bring their workloads to Pivotal. They really enjoy working with us. We're at the stage where we can say yes to a lot of their workloads, but to some of their workloads, there's this awkward no. Why? Let's not. Let's just stop doing that. Let's 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 enable them to bring their workloads. Let's give them Kubernetes, which is where a lot of these workloads are finding a really solid home, right? So let's bring that to market. But let's not just do that. Let's think about what the market actually needs and is lacking. And when you look at it, one of the things that's really challenging is, well, how do I stand up my Kubernetes? What's the right way to do that? What opinions should I have around high availability, around how to do upgrades, around how to, and how do I stay up to date? Kubernetes is moving so quickly. There's lots of goodness all the time. Like every quarter they have this great release that has a lot of stuff in it. How do I keep up? And the answer is like, no one really has a very strong answer for that, especially if you want to manage it yourself, you know? these Kubernetes as a service providers that we're seeing pop up like, you know, at Amazon, at Google and yeah. at Microsoft, like they'll, they'll be able to do that for you. But what if I want to run my Kubernetes workload on premise, right? Or what if I want to have more control over how the control, control plane is configured or what have you, right? So really became an opportunity for us to say, you know, we've been in this space for a long time, figuring out how to take complex distributed systems and deploy them on premise behind the firewall in a way that our customers can manage them and we we don't have to and that's bosch that's the power of bosch again what if we take all of those lessons and bring them to kubernetes what if we begin to provide that as a service right and like how does multi-tenancy work in kubernetes those are things we're exploring with our with our customers and what we're what we're going to enable folks to do is to deploy and manage not just one kubernetes cluster or two but just to, to really turn them into pets into sorry into cattle like the opposite of pets right like <laughs> like you know dev team over there needs a kubernetes just don't even file a ticket you know yeah. give me kubernetes enter we spin up a cluster now you have access to it and when it's time to do an upgrade to the latest version or because there's a security vulnerability and we have to patch the operating system it's the same experience just download it from from our so- distribution network and and install it so so what we're doing right is taking the lessons we've learned about how to package and distribute this complex distributed software and we're applying it to kubernetes and then we're bringing that to the market so that our customers don't have to be like oh not all of my workloads will work on pcf now they can be like oh yeah no i got this most of them do and i'm just going to run them and i'm going to pick the right tool for the job and so it was just a matter of taking diego out and plugging no 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 no, that's not what we're doing right okay the Pivotal application service continues to run Diego. It, it works great at scale. We, we, we have a lot of depth of experience at running it in the way that our customers, we've observed them use it. I mean, we have customers running thousands of applications in multi-tenant environments on a single Cloud Foundry cluster, and it gives them lots of efficiencies. And it's like just a small team of operators can manage that entire thing. Like that's super valuable. We don't, we don't want to break that. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to change that. There's no real value in changing that. It's not an or conversation in that sense. It's really an and conversation. We're saying in addition to that, you can also spin up a Kubernetes cluster. And rather than put in front of Kubernetes an API that's more opinionated, which would begin to limit sort of the utility of this lower level abstraction that is Kubernetes, we're just saying you can have Kubernetes, full-blown, you know, unencumbered vanilla Kubernetes. You can upgrade it whenever you need to. You can, you can deploy multiple you know, clusters of it. And we're going to help you make that really easy. And again, it's all about this learning journey. As we as we push that out, we're going to learn really quickly from our customers. Like, what are you doing with this? How's that working for you? And there's been a lot of things. We started to do some early interviews and sort of get the product into people's hands. And there's a lot of excitement around, oh my gosh, you mean I don't have to worry about how to manage this thing? You mean I don't have to just have one big cluster because I don't know how to deploy seven of them? Great. Sign me up. So this is this is like I'm a bank and I run on Cloud Foundry. And there are some new workloads that some engineers are coming up with. Maybe they're machine learning workloads or some other kind of workload that, for some reason, doesn't run great on Cloud Foundry because of the way Diego, the container orchestration system for Cloud Foundry, because of the way that works. It's less about the container orchestration system. It's more, it's more about the, the constraints that we apply in order to help. You know, in order to, you sort of, we put these guardrails up and say, hey, if you if you build within these guardrails, you'll be able to go very quickly and really able to manage the software completely autonomously. You won't have to be in, involved. And it's less about we're building something new that is a better fit for Kubernetes. What we find more and more often is we have something that's a little older 
or we have some commercial off-the-shelf software that's now being packaged as a Docker image, but it has all of these weird constraints, so it doesn't work well on Cloud Foundry, on PAS, the Pivotal Application Service. Now we can say, okay, we'll just bring that to Kubernetes, where it might be a little more finicky to manage, but you still get a lot of the benefits of Bosch and the day two operations, and you get a lot of the benefits of the speed of Kubernetes. And so it makes more sense to run it there than however you're currently running it today. Does that make sense? Maybe, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little bit unclear. So, well, let's start with the workload. So what what would be an example of a workload that I would want to run on Kubernetes as opposed to on the Cloud Foundry? Sure, a good one that we're seeing a lot of interest in is something like Elasticsearch. Okay, okay so like it, it needs persistence. It has some complex lifecycle stuff. It's generally difficult to like fully automate. Not a great fit for something that's optimized around just give me your source code and I'll run it for you, right? Yeah. But with Kubernetes, there's there's a lot more configurability around, you know, managing something like that, bringing it to a more cloud native world where you, you know, you can spin up your container much more quickly, you can move things around more easily. And so that's a I think that's been a classic example and it's one that our customers have brought to us they're like I want to run this. I'm building applications that need Elasticsearch. Yeah. I get that it doesn't run on the platform, but what do I do? Help me. Yeah. And so, well, we now have an answer. You, we can say, hey, here's Kubernetes. Here's here's the Elasticsearch community's opinion on how to run it on Kubernetes. Uh-huh. It's not going to be necessarily as fully automated as what you're used to with, with Cloud Foundry. This sort of push-button Bosch upgrades are, they just work. But it's definitely better than what you're doing now, right? And it gives you it gives you that flexibility. And you can you can bring it to the platform and and run it alongside your other workload. So does that does that help? Yes. So now the the thing I'm a little confused about is I've I'm an I'm the bank. I have set up my I want to set up my Elasticsearch cluster. I want to use I guess I want to use Pivotal as my service provider, and that's how I'm deploying Elasticsearch. Like, how does Elasticsearch get deployed on Kubernetes? What is my interface with Pivotal in this transaction when I'm setting it up. Got it. You're asking us for a Kubernetes cluster, and we're giving it to you. And then you're turning around and installing Elasticsearch on it, or maybe you're building some automation around that. Now, what's interesting is as we've delivered, started to deliver the PKS tile, Kubernetes uh, managed by Bosch, we've seen a lot of excitement from our ISVs, from our partners going, hey, we'd love to bring our software to run on top of PKS. And that experience will be more seamless, right? That will be like, hey, give me an instance of X, right? Whatever, whatever X may be, whatever partner we're talking about. So, for example, GitHub is 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 working to bring um, GitHub Enterprise to run on top of PKS, on top of Cloud Foundry, right? So it won't it won't be like, give me a PKS cluster, then I'll go over here and install GitHub, or maybe that's like the first thing that comes out the door. But eventually, what we want is to really enable this marketplace where. You know, as an operator, you just say, hey, I want to allow folks to install service X, and that will provide developers with an abstraction to just say, hey, I want an instance of service X. And under the hood, we're deploying a Kubernetes cluster, and we're running whatever needs to be run to bring the software to, to up and running on top of that Kubernetes cluster. And so it becomes just another option, you know, within, within the services marketplace that we have for deploying and managing services. Yeah. Because as a bank, I don't want to be thinking about, am I, okay, I want to get GitHub Enterprise. I want to get it on-premise. I don't want to think about, am I deploying this to the underlying infrastructure of Diego or if it's the underlying infrastructure of Kubernetes. I just want to have this. I just want, like, just give me give me GitHub now, right? Like that's that's the ultimate goal here. And it what it does is really, it's less about optionality for the banks. It's more optionality for the ISV partners, like, hey, you can either run on top of Bosch or you can run on top of Cloud Foundry, like PAS, or you can run on top of PKS. But what we want to do is make that a seamless experience for the bank in this yeah. in this example, right? And, it, and it's more than that, right? Like, if it's not just that the bank wants to deploy, like, there are services where they want to enable their teams to just push button deploy something, but maybe don't want them to worry about managing it, right? Because that's where you fall into the whole hey, are you spending your cycles on something valuable or are you spending your cycles on just keeping something up and running? And do you even have that skill set, right? And so to the extent that we can work with our partners to automate a lot of that away, 
so that you can reliably spin something up and trust that it works and, and understand how it's working and, and you know who to call if something's not working. Like that I think will be super valuable and it'll open up. Again, it's all about velocity. Like how do we help teams add these customers focus on delivering value and learning from whatever you know economy or market they're operating in in order to iterate on what they're delivering and ship a new version, right? Do you, do you think that gets you to a place eventually, maybe in five or 10 years where... Oh, five or 10 years, yeah. <laughs> where Pivotal thinks of itself less of... Because uh, I think right now the, the Pivotal funnel is mostly you, you are a Spring or a Cloud Foundry user, and that's how you make your way into the Pivotal ecosystem. But the way that you're talking about with an app marketplace sort of maybe I don't even need to be thinking about Spring or Cloud Foundry eventually. Maybe I'm just thinking, okay, yeah, Pivotal has a functions as a service platform I like. They've got some other tools that I like. I don't care about Cloud Foundry or Spring. I just wanted my Node app that happens to run this different stuff. Well, so so Node apps run on Cloud Foundry. This is this is important. Like Cloud Foundry sure, is Polyglot, absolutely. right? But so, but I, I I get what you're getting at, and yeah. we're even seeing this now. Some of our data services that run on the platform, there's some interest in. Hey, I, I'd love to run this. You yeah. know, I don't feel like I need all of Cloud Foundry, or maybe I have Cloud Foundry over here in this line of business, but over there we just want we just want Gemfire, or we just want GPDB. Can you bring that to the service marketplace and, and, and make it just automated enough that I don't have to worry about how to manage this thing, right? And so we are definitely starting to see, I don't think that's five to 10 years away at all. I think that we're starting to see this sort of, I think Cloud Foundry will always be the emphasis, at least certainly for, for, the, for the near term, right? But like the, the marketplace of different services, the catalog of services becoming more and more full featured. Yeah. And, you know, so, so yeah, I think we're seeing... And we will be seeing more and more people wanting to say, hey, I, I just want that one piece or this other piece. And, and I love the automation and I love the, the ease with which I can get it and enable my developers to use it. So totally. Yeah, because we see this increase in non-commodity services. Like, you know, five years ago, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, AWS or Google or Azure, you know, it's all the same. You're just getting some compute, some storage, some blob storage, who cares? But today it's like really high level stuff. And, you know, I talk to companies all the time where they're like, yeah, I'm mostly on AWS, but I use BigQuery because Amazon doesn't have a BigQuery. And so, the natural extension of that seems to be, well, there's going to be more room for more cloud providers that are offering different, weirder, niche, more niche yeah. services. Yeah. yeah, Pretty interesting. So the other big announcement slash trend that I feel is important here at this conference is reactive. I was talking to John Bloom yesterday about Spring Data, which is basically the the data interface layer if you're building a spring application so that if you're querying a data source it doesn't matter if it's mysql or mongo or gemfire or whatever you have a, a fairly consistent interface for dealing with that data and then we got to a conversation about reactive which is basically the idea that if there's a change to a data source that you are a consumer of your application can respond to that change rather than having to write some application-level polling of the database, which is much more burdensome. And one of the things he said that was pretty interesting was the idea that like, if you want to be reactive, you generally have to build it at all layers of the stack. You have to have a database that is un- that knows how to push changes to you. You have to have middleware that know how to push the changes to you, and you have to have an application-level abstraction that can consume those pushed changes. So tell me how that trend and that emphasis on reactive applications has affected software development at Pivotal. I I think it's primarily been us wanting to really embrace what we're seeing emerging, right? And it's been emerging for a while, right? Like this, this asynchronous programming model. And then I think that the key word in what you were talking about was consistency, like the, the spring framework the Spring platform is all about really providing that consistent programming model, that really well-documented, easy-to-understand set of patterns so that you can leverage it and and get big wins quickly, right? And so the emphasis has really been on what does it look like to do that well and to do that thoughtfully and to bring that 
to market so that folks, you know, like I said in my keynote, it's not this big expensive choice between different languages or frameworks, but it's actually something that I can wrap my head around more easily and start to leverage now because I'm I'm used to Spring and I know how that works and I and I get how all of this fits in. Yeah, I don't. I think again. It's something that I think the folks in the Spring team can speak to much more in much oh, okay. more depth and detail than than I would be able to. But you know that that's really been the approach of saying, "Hey, there's a lot here that's valuable." And right now, folks are feeling almost paralyzed by how how do I approach this, <laughs> right? And how do we lower that burden and that fear factor so that folks can understand that this isn't this alien thing, yeah. that it it is something that you can be productive with with pretty quickly. Uh huh. Yeah. Does that it all bring us back to the beginning of the conversation where we were talking about the fact that if you want to, sometimes if you want to implement something across an organization like reactive programming with this idea that touches different layers of the stack, does that require any sort of like management from on high where you have to say, hey, layer X of the stack, we need your middleware to become reactive? Sure. I think there are moments in every organization where you grapple with this must come from on high. More and more, I've grown skeptical of that sort of approach. I think it's it's much more effective to see sort of what are the patterns emerging at the grassroots level? How do I amplify the ones that are working really well? And then at some point, you get to the point where you go, hey, no, this is working, and we're going to invest in it, and we're going to support it. And perhaps we're going to communicate that this is the future and we want everyone to move in that direction right and and that tends to be a more effective way to manage this is just pure like philosophy of management at this point right but like i find that having that grassroots aha moment that spreads organically versus dictating top down thou shalt use x especially when you know people get disempowered when you say thou shalt use x and they will feel obliged to use x even though x might not be the best answer always right and and then you end up with just you know wasted effort low morale and so i think really like helping folks understand the values and the pros and cons of x whatever x might be and doing that organically and then and then driving towards that so i think a really good story for us was concourse so concourse emerged out of one of our projects we had a couple of engineers who were just frustrated with uh, the options that we were using at the time and we're for like CICD. for CICD I won't get into what we were using at the time that's less important right <laughs> uh, and it wasn't just one thing it was like a variety of different things and we were struggling and it wasn't working and you know we had tried as an organization to mandate you know thou shalt use one of these solutions and people were doing it but and it was okay but it was clear there were clearly clearly issues with it. And what was interesting was Concourse started to come out and it was, again, tailored to work the way that we want to work, tailored to solve the complexity problems that we have. And it was really cool to see it totally emerge as this grassroots thing. So one team started to adopt it and then sort of almost broke the rules and was like, no, this is going to be our thing now and we're just going to use it. Another team saw that and was like, hey, that's really cool. Can we contribute? Can we use it? And so it spread a little bit. And at that point, that created a moment for leadership. We're like, okay, what do we do with this? This is signal, right? This is a signal to us that there's this thing emerging that we could invest in. Let's understand the pros and cons. Oh, look, the pros are pretty solid here. Yeah. Folks are happier. They're able to move more efficiently. And so it spread a little bit more. And then eventually it was like, hey, this is now the standard. This is everything new is going to use this. And we'd like folks to explore migrating over and if there's a reason that you can't that's fine let us know and let's inform the backlog for concourse and we gradually got to the point where at this point just about everyone is using concourse and we don't have much of the old stuff left it took maybe i don't remember how long it took but we got to the point where we like decommissioned what we were doing before and had pivoted over to concourse and that was just a really good lesson for me on like how something organic can lead to this opinion forming that becomes top down now at our scale that's not so complicated. Larger scales, yeah. 5,000 devs, 10,000 devs, I can see how that might not be viable and how you'd need to have a more sort of top-down, here are the patterns that we want to follow. Well, but I think it's always important to like ground those in reality, right? So I, I worked at Amazon pretty briefly, and I actually saw both of those things. Right. So f- as far as innovation, 
it happened exactly like you just described. You you create an environment where people do feel comfortable to experiment and build stuff, and they know that if they build something successful, it will get buy-in from the management. In fact, they had ways to germinate that and to nurture it. It was it was it was so built into Amazon's culture. You could see that this is how a lot of successful projects had started. It was like somebody saw something that would be useful to make, they made it, and then they got management buy-in, they got resources, maybe they now manage their own division of the organization. But you also saw these things where they're like, okay, we are going to standardize on this. We have a way of doing service-oriented architecture. We're going to service proxy this way. We're going to aggregate metrics this way. Every single team must do this. You want both of those things. You do. And you need to, and you need to balance the two. Right, and you need to be thoughtful about where an opinion is in its life cycle. Is this still in the pioneering, germinating phase, or are we ready to settle this landscape? Right, like is it time for this to to become mainstream? Totally. Yeah, I know your time is short. Last question: How is Pivotal going to change in the next five years? How is Spring and Cloud Foundry and the other associated services going to change? That the five-year horizon is one that I find it's almost funny to really talk about. This this whole industry is moving so quickly. I think my answer is always the same, and it sounds like a cop-out, yeah. but I don't mean it to be. Our posture is a learning posture, right? We're, we're constantly learning and reevaluating, And so while we have a vision, and that vision is very clear, it's around orienting our customers towards that same posture. How do we enable learning? How do we enable fast feedback loops? How do we allow folks to focus on what's valuable and not on what's not valuable? How can we take on that burden of giving you the dial tone that you need to be productive so that you don't have to worry about getting it yourself. Those are the guiding principles that I don't, I don't see those changing. Those are fundamental to the mission. What we need to do to accomplish that, let's find out. Okay. Onsi Fakuri, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Wow.